It's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. When I was asking the Lord what to share, He kind of led me to this little passage in uh, James, James chapter 1. I want to start off, well, that'll be our home base this morning, so set a marker there if you want. Um, but we'll start off just by reading a couple verses, James chapter 1, and then we'll get into the introduction here. Verse 2, <clears throat> excuse me, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And another translation says you are met with diverse temptations. So, and we know diverse means various or many or different temptations. And so what I want to talk about today is the testing of our faith. Trials, what are trials? So we're going to have three parts. Joy in our tests. We're going to talk about joy. We're going to talk about the need for wisdom. And then we're going to talk about the difference between a test and a temptation, because they're two different things, and our attitude and temptation is a little different than testing. And it's all right here in these few verses in James chapter 1, which has been very encouraging for me to study out, and I trust it will be for you also. So first of all, joy in our tests. What are tests? What are tests, first of all? We have to understand what we're dealing with, what we're getting ourselves into, or what the Lord is bringing us through. So what is a test? Trials, tests are designed to produce spiritual maturity. They should therefore be counted as joy. And that word joy is not a temporal happiness, like when you get a new puppy. It's eternal joy. It's enduring joy. It's ongoing, life-altering joy. And your dear sister Sarah covered that pretty well last week, so we're not going to major on that too much. But Knowing when we go through these trials, these tests, what the end is should cause an eternal outpouring, upflowing of joy to go forth through us. Now, what we did say is you might not feel it. And that's, again, the difference between eternal joy. Sometimes you don't feel it and you do it anyway, and it kind of just bubbles up out of you. And again, we covered that a lot last week. So, But a test, a trial, putting to proof by experiment and experience, trying a man's faith or fidelity, integrity, virtue, consistency. These are all things that God is doing in a test. And that's why we should rejoice, because he's proving us. He's testing us. He's proving our integrity, our fidelity, our faithfulness to him. So what does he do through tests? Well, he exposes our old nature, first of all, all that yuckiness that's still left over from our B.C. days, right? And depending on how long you were in the B.C. period, you might have more old nature to deal with, or you might still have stuff that's been passed down from generation to generation that also needs to be dealt with. I was saved when I was five years old, so I didn't have a very long B.C. period. But I still got a whole bunch of stuff that my parents were very... Um, I was very fortunate to receive, so I got all these extra tests to work out. And then there's things that we do along the way that that uh, needs to be dealt with. He perfects our faith through trials, through testings. He shows us what our faith is. He perfects us 
through that. He produces divine nature and true holiness. Now, we've all been raised in, for the most of our lives in Zion Fellowship under the teaching of, of our leaders, and we know the difference between holiness and innocence. You know, Adam and Eve were innocent when they were created, but they needed to be turned into holiness. And holy, true holiness, is tested. True holiness is established and faithful and strengthened through trials and testing. It's uh, purified out. All of that yuckiness is purified out of us. And that's what he's trying to do. So where do tests come from? Well, they can come from all different kinds of reasons, all different sources. We've got God-ordained tests that he says, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to allow this to happen. Think of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? God started that whole thing. He goes to Satan and goes, look at Job. Look at how good he is. Because he knows what Satan's going to do. God ordained that whole thing, which is great because he sets us up and he knows how we're going to react. And the end result is perfection, holiness, and a strengthened faith. We have self-made tests. These are big ones, right? Comes when we ignore God's word or maybe we ignore a prompting or maybe we engage our mouth before we engage our brain, which is... A problem sometimes too, right? We can bring trials upon ourselves. We can bring tests upon ourselves by either ignoring God, a warning from God, not obeying his ways, or maybe by saying something we shouldn't say. David brought trials upon himself at the end of his life because of actions that he did in the earlier part of his life. And some things with the rejection of his sons, and and some of those things were brought on because of what he had done. He had ignored some some things that God had been telling him to do. Peter, think about Peter. He brought a lot of tests on himself, didn't he? What I I was actually just teaching this last week with um, Peter being tested. Jesus told him before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. What is Peter's response? No, no, no. All these other jokers, they're going to deny you, but not me. And Peter and Jesus responds, oh, yeah, well, let's see about that. And what happens? Jesus follows, or Jesus is taken to the temple. Peter follows. But who else was there? If you look at John, John was there too. No one said a word to John. Why? Well, John didn't. Say something like, everybody else will deny you, but not me. John was sitting right there, and they would have known Peter and John were together because they were always together anyway. So Peter invited that. And we can do that a lot, can't we? We, How many times have we gone through a testing and said, oh, yep, that was me. I remember when I said, I'll never do that, and here I am doing that, right? So think about that. Also, the decisions of others can bring tests into our lives. Uh, whether they're resulting or other people do things that directly affect us and bring hardship into our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, think about Naomi's husband who says, let's go into this other country and look at all of the things that happened based on that decision. It doesn't say the Lord told him to go. He just says he went. And what happens? He loses, Naomi loses her husband or two sons a sister, a daughter-in-law stays behind and one goes forward. But that 
was a decision that, or a test that was brought through, brought about by a decision on someone else made, right? So that's what tests are. Now, why should I rejoice in all these? Well, we talked about it a little bit. We know what he's trying to produce in us. Verse three and four, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you might be perfect and entire and lacking nothing. James is so practical. He uses that word perfect a lot if you read through this book. Just underline how many times he says perfect. Perfect meaning complete, whole, not wanting or lacking of anything. <clears throat> Testing your faith, knowing the meaning of the trial, just as Jesus was tested in the wilderness. We are all tested, and it's, it's a positive thing that happens. It's a positive thing to be tested because he's producing patience. The, the ESV calls it steadfastness, which is endurance. It's holding, being able to hold steady. It's producing that in us. The result of, patient, or of trials or testings is steadfastness, a life of faithful endurance amid trials and struggles. Why wouldn't we rejoice knowing that that's the result? A lifelong endurance amid troubles and afflictions. And ultimately, it leads to perfection, which again is completeness. We grow in holiness, but we have not yet been perfected. I haven't been. I'm not yet perfect, meaning I'm not yet complete. If I was, I wouldn't be here. Right? If I was perfected and completed and ready to cross the finish line, then that's, be, that's kind of how we stretch across the finish line on our last day, knowing that he's completed everything that he wanted to do. It is finished, right? Jesus said, I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready. Paul said the same thing. I'm ready to be offered. I know my time is complete. We're not there yet. He's still doing a lot of work in us, and he does that through trials, right? They work patience in us. We learn to settle in. We learn to accept what's happening. How many times when you're in a trial, and I'm guilty of this just like anybody else, when you're in the middle of a trial going, oh, Lord, how much longer is this thing going to last? <laughs> Can we just move on, please? I mean, a lot of times we do that, don't we? Um, but I... I I've learned over the years that that's not necessarily the best attitude to have is, Lord, do what you need to do so I don't have to do this again, right? Because if we say, Lord, can I be out of here? He might say yes, but then he's got to bring you around the bend again, doesn't he? The learning, the endurance, learning to settle in and deal with it. That's one thing we learn and how it develops that patience and perfection in us. Another thing is we learn to ask for grace, grace being divine enablement. We know that we've got, if we look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.6, we have manifold trials, many trials, various trials. That same exact word is used in 1 Peter 4.10, where it says manifold grace, many grace, various grace, many colored grace, many hued colors of grace. And it's the same word is used for describing our trials. So there's a, it's like there's a matching color of grace. All right, I'm in a purple trial, so I need some purple grace to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing here. What is the right thing? I need to ask for grace. Knowing or the strengthening 
of that grace or the, the enabling power, the matching enabling power of grace, right? If you have a diesel engine and you put unleaded fuel in there, you're going to have a big problem. So you want to make sure you've got the diesel fuel to go in the diesel engine. The matching fuel to get you through the situation is what you need. Another thing that was really encouraging to me was James 5, where he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He's waiting for us to be ready. He's patient for us to be ready, for that harvest to be ready. He's waiting. He's patiently waiting because he wants perfect fruit. You know, waiting all year long or all season long for that perfect apple or orange to be pulled off the tree. Imagine taking a bite out of it and realizing it wasn't fully ripe or worse yet, had been left too long and it was a little bit rotten. He wants it perfect. And he's waiting. He's looking. He's watching. Ooh, that's a perfect piece of fruit. Ready to go. So he says, don't grudge. Grudge not against your others, lest you be, be condemned. Don't judge. Don't grudge. When you're going through a trial, it can affect us. Maybe you're a little bit more on edge than what you usually are. If I've had a long day at work, even though I work from home, if I've been had a very stressful day if something's going on that's been affecting me. I've, there's been a few times where I would get off of the computer and my wife could just see my countenance was different. She's like, you know, I think you need to go outside and take a walk or maybe you should go to the driving range for a little bit and hit some balls and unwind. Because she could just tell just by looking at me, right? Isn't that what, how, what makes our wife so awesome? And is they could say, yeah, you don't look so good. Maybe you go for a walk. <laughs> and we've been married long enough to where it doesn't even really taking me saying anything, but she can just look at me and say, yeah, you need to go for a walk. So, okay, I'll see you in an hour. I'll be back. <laughs> don't grudge. Don't take that out on someone else. Keep a good relationship with people. All right. So now we move on. Wisdom, the need for wisdom. So we're rejoicing because we know all the perfecting that God's doing in us. We know what he's doing. That's the end result. It's not, oh, let's just get this over with. It's, Lord, do the perfect work so that I'm perfected and, and ready. James 1, verses 5 through 8, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, up, upbraideth not that it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable as water in all his ways. This is all in the context of trials and tests and tribulations. Now, we can take that one verse, if you lack wisdom, ask. Yeah, and that can apply for all of our life. But specifically here, he's referencing trials and tests, asking for wisdom for that test. He's going right down the line in the context. So what is wisdom and why do I need it? Wisdom is experience, knowledge, good judgment, knowing the right thing to do, the right time to do it. You might know the right thing to do, but it might not be the right time. The fulfilling of all wisdom is knowing the right thing to do and the right time to do it. And then, of course, acting on it, doing it, which he talks about later on, and it's a totally separate message. Proverbs 4, verse 7, wisdom is the principle 
most important thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all you're getting, get understanding. And again, said in the context of chests, of trials. James is telling us, if you lack it, if you don't know what to do, ask for it. And don't just assume that God's going to give it to you. Well, he knows I'm here. He knows I need it. He says, no, ask for it. Ask in faith. You cannot just assume that he's going to give it to you because he knows you have to ask. You have to ask. A person who doubts God's goodness is dishonoring him. Such a person cannot suppose that he's going to receive grace just un, or uh, wisdom or receive anything from the Lord if he's doubting God's goodness or doubting what he'll even do. You have to humble yourself and say, Lord, I need wisdom. I need to be able to, I need to know what to do and when to do it. So how do we get wisdom? We ask. We ask. And the good thing is, is there's, there's, it's, there's an infinite supply of wisdom. He says he gives it to us freely un, and un, what's the word? Un, un, there's no limit to it. It's not like less asked and got my portion. If less than I ask, there's enough to go around for everybody, right? It's an unending supply of wisdom. All we have to do is ask. Ask for him to remain faithful. Wisdom of what to do. Joseph is a great example of this as well. The wisdom of knowing what to do in the right situation. He was enduring as well. The right words to say, the right thing to do. Daniel, another perfect example. Knowing exactly the right thing to do and the right time to do it. The right time to say it. Telling Potiphar to store up those that food. There's going to be seven years. That's the right word in season, the right thing to do. If they wouldn't have done it, they wouldn't have had any food left over for the seven years of famine that were coming down the way. The reward to those who endure, James 1 verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Why wouldn't you rejoice in this? This is a great thing, a crown of life that the Lord has set apart for you given it to you. He's promised to those who love him. A blessing is announced on those that endure. And again, he returns back to the theme from verse 2, which is rejoice, count it all joy. Here's the reason why. And ask for the wisdom, ask for the grace, ask what you need, but rejoice because God's doing it for your benefit. And again, Joseph is another Example, not just the wisdom, but he had to endure a long time. He had that prophecy when he was a young man. We don't know exactly how old, but it seems to me like he was in his teens and probably even early teens. And then he's in, his brothers throw him in prison. Well, they're going to kill him first. Then they throw him in a pit and leave him there until they figure out what they're going to do with him. Then he gets sold into slavery, does the right thing still gets persecuted, gets thrown in the jail, does the right thing again, and it gets ignored. All this time, in Psalms it says the word of the Lord tried him, which is, Pastor Karim explains, like it was building iron into his bones, where he's strengthened and enduring, and remembering, oh yeah, 17 years ago, the Lord said, my parents were, and my brethren were going to bow down to me, and, and all of these things that he was rehearsing over and over and over again, 
enduring till the end. And then the time comes and Potiphar, not Potiphar, Pharaoh says there is a need and Joseph was there in season and time to deliver. So he gets that reward for his endurance. Now, as we get to the last couple of verses, uh, verse 13 through 15, James chapter 1, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts any, be any man. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived it, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So there's a difference, James is even saying. There's a difference. A test from God versus a temptation to do evil. God is not responsible for both. He's responsible for the test, the purification, the proving, the perfection. The devil wants to entice and lure away, and he uses those words. It makes me think of a fisherman luring away and enticing trying to get you to come off the path. That's what the enemy is doing. James turns from the testing, which has a good reason, to the temptation, which is trying to get us to go off the path. And again, all of this is linked together with wisdom, with grace, with trials and tests. And you can be tested and tried, tempted and tried at the same time. Going through a testing from God, the enemy comes in and says, oh, is this going to last forever? Why don't we get out of here? This is too hard. So you're getting them both at the same time, but you have to understand the source and understand that God's not doing this. He's not saying, you're going to fail. You're miserable. You might as well quit. That's not God. That's the enemy trying to tempt you. He's trying to entice you, saying, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm terrible. <laughs> it's not God. He doesn't test us that way. God does not do that. He doesn't speak to us that way. We have external tests, battling our mind. That's a big one, these temptations in our mind. Oh, you, you know, a good Christian would have been over this by now. You know, Al's not going through it like I am. Al's doing good. I'm over here failing all the time, right? You could think that way. Is that the Lord? Does he speak to us like that? No, he does not. You can have physical battles, and we know about those as well. External things affecting us. Internal things. Temptations brought on us because of the lusts of our flesh and so forth. Our inner impulses to do evil. We are still at the very core, born in sin. We have a sinful nature. We have those temptations, whatever your iniquities might be that you're still dealing with. So it's, it's the animal, the enemy trying to pull us off track, using whatever tool he can to get us off track. And what I've noticed and what I saw here when I read these verses, verse 16, in the King James it says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. But in the ESV and other translations, it says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And again, this is in the context of trials and tests. And it's there's a vulnerability to deception in this area because we're already kind of weak. We're already going through it. We're already feeling it. Even if you're still following the Lord and receiving the grace and you're rejoicing, you're still experiencing a trial, a test that's difficult. And we're vulnerable, if we're not careful, to the enemy 
trying to deceive us. Now, he uses deception in all kinds of other ways, and Pastor Daniel shared an awesome message on it. He shared it again at convention, as well as Pastor Dan Karam, you know, conspiracy theories and all that and all that stuff as well. But what I noticed here was the vulnerability to deception, even when we're going when we're going through trials and temptation. And what does that look like? And again, that literal the literal translation of "do not be deceived" is literally "stop being deceived." So it's almost like James's the readers of James were already nibbling on that bait, if you will. Now, what does he do? How does Satan do that? Well, if your God is good and loving, why is he letting you suffer? If he is omnipotent, he could stop this. He's using those words to bring deception. That's exactly what he did all the way at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? Did God say that? You open that door, and he's using that deception to get us to nibble on it and say, you know what? You're right. God is omnipotent. He could easily fix this. What is going on? Why is this still happening? And then you get bubbled up with all of those thoughts that lead us down a very negative path. And if we're not careful, can take us off the path completely. We need to define those good gifts, which we're going to see in verse 17. Everything good, everything perfect, everything wise comes from the Lord. All of that other stuff is the enemy trying to take us off, off track. He only gives us good things. When Job's wife said, curse God and die, he responds by saying, what? Do I take only the good things from God and when he sends me evil stuff, I'm not supposed to accept it? I'm paraphrasing. That's the Jason Standard Version. But he responds, Job 2.10, I think it was. Yeah, Job 2.10. Should we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity or trouble or tests? So we need to have discernment. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the enemy, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion walking about seeking who he may devour. We need discernment. To recognize that voice, that's not God speaking to me right now. And when you're weary and going through a trial, you just feel like, oh. And you almost just sometimes accept it. I've, I've experienced it, where it's just, you're going through it, everything's heavy on you, you're doing everything you can just to keep your feet moving. And then you hear a voice like that, and you're like, oh, you know what? That's right. <laughs> and you feel the enemy, and he's attacking you, and you have to say no. That word sober is... Be on alert, be awake, be, a, be a cautioned, be advised, be careful. When anything, when anything in Scripture where, he's, where somebody says, take heed to this, it means pay attention to what I'm about to say. It's very important. We need to perk up our ears and pay attention. Whenever they, we would travel to other countries, either with work or with the ministry, you go through a marketplace and it's like, watch out for pickpockets. Watch out for pickpockets. What does that mean? Pay attention. <laughs> don't, put, don't put your wallet in your back pocket. Don't walk around looking at your phone. Pay attention. Be careful. Oh, the Lord will protect me. Yes, he will protect you, but you still got to be careful. There's this concept that I know is in the military. I know it's in law enforcement and also in self-defense. It's called situational awareness. Situational awareness is the use of your sensory system 
to scan the environment with the purpose of identifying threats in the present or projecting those threats into the future. That is situational awareness. And we need spiritual and physical situational awareness. The enemy knows his time is near. He's not giving up. He's not just going to say, I might as well stop because I know I already lost. He's going to say, no, I'm taking as many of you guys with me as I can. He's increasing his attacks, and we must always be watchful and vigilant. But here's the real situation for your awareness. The battle's over. The battle's already over, right? We fight from a position of victory. We're, we're on the good side. We're on the Lord's side. We're on the victor's side. I read a quote in a devotional the other day that said, conquerors get victory after the battle's over. That's a conqueror, somebody who's won a battle. But we are more than conquerors because we already won, even though the battle's not even over. We know the outcome. That's how we are more than conquerors because the battle's already over and we're on the good side. We're on the winner's side. That makes us more than conquerors because we're fighting from a position of victory. We're not trying to get it. We just need to hold on to the Lord and let him win. We need to, we need to keep our awareness up so the enemy does not take us off track. Okay? Just like you wouldn't walk through New York City just staring at your phone and walking across the street. Right? Situational awareness. This is the enemy trying to lead me off the path. I need to ask for ways, ask for wisdom, okay? Also, maintaining our love for the truth will help with deception, will help keep our discernment sharp, understanding and loving the truth. 2 Thessalonians 9, 2, chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. We won't read all of it, but those who are given over to deception are what? They refused to love the truth. They didn't receive a love for the truth. Therefore, they're given over to deception and all of the deceitfulness that's coming are their way. Also, maintain a rejoicing spirit, spirit, another key, when deception is coming. So how do we avoid it? Last two verses. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, no shadow of turning, of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be kind, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He moves again from evil temptation back to observing and affirming every good, perfect gift comes from God. Yes, you're going to be tempted. Yes, the enemy's going to try to pull you off track. But remember, every good thing comes from God. Every good thing comes from the Father of lights, all of the rewards that he has. There's no changing in him. He didn't change his mind. He said, oh, I thought I was going to do that, but maybe we should do this instead. He doesn't do that. He's got a plan, and he leads us down that plan. So, And every good thing that comes as a result is all from him. So we have to, even in the middle of these tests, temptations, when the enemy's trying to deceive us, affirm God's goodness. Satan uses doubt did God really do that? But we can affirm God's goodness as a way of battling that. Yes, God did do this. Then a verse I love for this, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 10. 
who delivered us from so great a death. He does deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. He has, he currently is, and he will do it. Affirm his goodness, affirm his sovereignty. He is sovereign. He is the good one. I know that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Good, good or affirmations of God's goodness, of his sovereignty will be quiet, the enemy. Jesus did the same thing in the, in the wilderness. It is written. It is written. It is written. We know the truth. We know his word. We know what he's done. And that's how we combat that. So, yes, we get tests. Yes, we get temptations. The result of those tests is always for our benefit, for our good. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Nothing worth doing ever is easy. It's hard for a reason, because God is working a deep work to perfect us. But maintain that rejoicing spirit. Be mindful the enemy is going to try to deceive you. Keep your situational awareness up. Say, oh, I recognize what's happening. And know, have that good affirmation. God is good. He's done all of these things in the past. I have these notebooks. You'll see me carrying them around all the time where I'm writing down what God has done or what God's speaking, and I've had gone through them over, over the past and said, oh, I totally forgot that that happened. It's a good thing to say, oh, yeah, God did this. God spoke this. He's doing it now, and I know he'll do it in the future. And the enemy can't answer that. Okay? So I trust this word was an encouragement to you as it was to me. Thank you for the opportunity. And Pastor Dana, if you wanted to close in prayer, great.